That's awesome. Thank you guys so much for worshiping with us. I hope you're really engaged. And then I know it's different. I know it's it's weird doing church on your phone or whatever. Uh, but here's the deal. These are, are weird times. As a matter of fact, right now is such a weird time that there's been some interesting fashion trends I've noticed uh, during summer of 2020. So one of them is an ad popped up uh, as I was scrolling online the other day for a three-piece bathing suit. And I was confused. What is a three-piece bathing suit? And the description was it's a two-piece bathing suit with a matching mask (laughs) right like i hope that is a summer trend that does not carry over to next summer that we are still having to do all of this with masks but who thought there would be such a thing and so i actually thought about wearing a three-piece uh suit in the video today but our viewership would plummet and so we we didn't do that so uh in our house we don't really do the two-piece bathing suits thing with our boys because we got boys but our sons do have a fashion trend that for several months they've been really obsessed with. And that is what I call old man Hawaiian shirts, like the really ugly ones that I'm not allowed to wear because I'm too old. Like that's the thing, right? Uh, They're just obsessed with the old man Hawaiian shirts. And so uh, a couple of weeks ago, several weeks ago, when we were in Florida after my dad's passing, we were walking back to the car from a restaurant and we walked past this shop where um, it's kind of high end beach wear or whatever. And in the window of this shop, my son stops And my oldest son loses his mind. And I'm like, what are you so excited about? What what have you seen in the window of this shop? And it was the red uh, Hawaiian shirt that Tom Selleck wore again and again throughout Magnum P.I. Like the hideous bright red with like a parrot on it or whatever. Like it's the ugliest shirt ever. And my son is like, hey... It's the shirt worn by that guy from Blue Bloods. Apparently, he used to be on a different show. I'm like, you don't even know what Magnum P.I. is, and yet you're so excited about this shirt. And we look at the price tag, and this replica shirt is $75. And he's like, I've got money from Grandma. And I'm like, dude, you ain't buying this $75 shirt from Magnum P.I. that you've never even seen, right? But that was the thing. Like, they were so excited about that. And, And then I think about, like, the past fashion trends, because as we went through pictures in my parents' house, uh, unfortunately, part of that was my sons saw the things that my parents used to dress me and my brothers in, right? And like, here's the thing. I still have issues about the sweater with the train on it. Mom, if you're watching right now, we're, we're going to have to talk through that later. I, I, there's a wound that needs to be healed by Jesus. But I noticed in so many of these old school pictures that like the size of our collars Like, I really think if just the right gust of wind were to have come by, we could have just parasailed to school every day with the collars that went on for days. But the thing about fashion is it continues to change. It changes with every generation. It changes as quick as the wind shifts. But we're going to talk about a timeless fashion trend this morning, one that endures from one generation to another. And I think it is a desperately needed fashion trend for where we are as a culture today. And so I invite you please to grab your Bible. We're going to say our creed together. And again, yes, please say this out loud. I think there's something powerful about us continuing to say the creed. One is it's part of our DNA. It's who we are. So even when we're not doing church in the typical way, it feels like a a little bit of normalcy. And I think it's important that even if you're alone right now, that we say this out loud because it reminds us that we're not actually alone as, as we might feel. Okay, and so let's do this together and let's declare this together. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. So, Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind 
and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you so much. I'm going to invite you please to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5 is where we will be for the next few weeks with this new series. And really, for this morning, we're only going to look at one verse. Actually, we're only going to look at the second half of one verse. And then we'll we'll build on this in the weeks to come. But we're going to begin this conversation right now uh, about this idea of, of what Peter's instruction is to the church. And here's the thing, just last month when we were, were walking through the series Church at Everywhere, the, the first two sermons kind of centered around... Jesus' teachings to Peter and then his influence in this thing we called church, that we call church. And and it's Peter who says, hey, the word on the streets might be that you're some prophet, but I believe you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And that declaration is, is the very declaration upon which the church is built. And then it's Peter who stands up on that great day when the church really became visible, when the power of God fell and the Spirit of God fell on their people, the day of Pentecost. It was Peter. This story fast-forwards in his life. He's nearing the end of his life. He's a mature guy now, and, and this thing called the church has literally unfolded before his very eyes. And as he's giving the church these practical instructions for living we find that it meets us where we are today in the summer of 2020 in a profoundly relevant way. First Peter chapter 5, we're looking at the tail end of verse number 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you. So this is one of those verses that applies to everybody who claims to be a follower of Jesus. Earlier in chapter 5, he was talking to uh, shepherds or pastors of, of these churches. But right now he's like, hey, for everybody... It's time for a fashion change. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. With humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Clothe yourselves with humility. It's interesting. Some translations say put on humility. Uh, and, and we're being asked right now here in the Metroplex to put on masks whenever we go anywhere, right? We're, we're being asked to put on masks. And it's interesting how I've watched the response to the mask uh, request or ordinance or whatever you want to call it. I've watched people be so angry about our rights, I'm seeing so many aggressive things being said with really prideful tones about our rights. And don't get me wrong, I know that there is a time and a place when it's healthy and and right that we would fight for our rights. My concern today in 2020 is this. I see a lot of people who claim to be followers of Jesus who are far more concerned about their rights than they are about being right with God. We seem far more concerned about what's happening to us than where we are in the posture of our hearts before a living, holy God. And what Peter says is there's something more important than putting on a mask, and that is that we would put on humility. And I would submit to you that to put on humility makes it a lot easier to put on a mask. And maybe you doubt the science of the mask. And how couldn't you? This is an unknown time. There's a lot of conflicting information. 
But what we believe is if we've put on humility, then the things that are asked of us are a whole lot more reasonable. And, and again, I don't mean in laying down our religious freedom and all that kind of thing. I'm talking in the simplest uh, areas of life that we would clothe ourselves with humility. And to be admonished to do that from the scriptures means a couple things. It means we actually get the choice. We get to choose every day when we wake up. Am I going to put on humility today or am I going to make today all about me? Am I going to try to force the universe around me to revolve around me? Or am I going to begin my day by clothing myself with humility and there's so much right now that's outside of our control, isn't it? It's, in, it's crazy. It's, it's infuriating. It's, it's, man, we thought we had more control than we're realizing we actually do. But we actually have control over this. We get to choose. Am I going to fight to sit on the throne of my own heart today? Or am I going to clothe myself with humility? We actually get to make that choice. And, and, and this admonition to, to clothe ourselves with humility isn't just a choice. It, it's now become a responsibility because that encouragement has endured for 2,000 years. That the people of God would be marked by, identified by humility. The word here, clothe yourselves, literally means to tie a knot. And it's one of those word pictures in Scripture that we might would miss if we're reading too fast. And, and it's almost like putting on a cape backwards, right? So picture Nacho Libre, but the cape is on backwards, not not the other way, not the Superman way, right? And it's actually the picture of how a, a servant would kind of turn a piece of cloth into an apron when they were serving so that they didn't get their clothes all dirty. They were going to get their hands dirty serving, but they weren't going to get all dirty, so they would put on this cape or this apron or this robe to protect their clothes. And I believe with all my heart that what Peter was picturing as he gave this instruction to the church, I believe he was picturing Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God, who tied a knot. (laughs) He tied a towel around his waist and he got on his knees and he washed the disciples' feet. I believe that's the picture that's being painted in here is that we would clothe ourselves with the heart of a servant. And so I, I want to talk about just kind of a definition of humility or a, a biblical picture of humility because I think it's a really misunderstood word. We even talk about the idea of false humility, that people will say things negative about themselves as though that's what humility is, that humility is beating yourself up or thinking that you're worthless or something, when that's not a biblical picture of humility at all. I believe humility is having a high view of God. First and foremost, I believe humility is having a high view of God, which I believe will then give us a high view of every man, woman, and child who bears his image. See, I I think a low view of God will always result in a high view of self. And what we see right now, especially in our culture, in Southern American Christian culture, is I believe God is being put in the corner. I believe we have a marginalized view of God, meaning he's important enough to get us to heaven. He's important enough to save us from hell, but we really don't want to orient our life around him, around his rule, around his reign, around his glory. We want to live for self. It's almost like there's this unspoken idea that, God, it'll be all about you when I get to heaven. 
but I'm just going to, I'm going to do me. You do you and we'll, we'll take care of that in heaven, but I'm going to do what I want to do. I want to get what I want and I want it when I want it. It's all about me. And that view of a, of a small God whom the universe doesn't revolve around will result in us thinking higher of ourselves, thinking that it's all about me. And I'm surely not going to love people if it's all about me. I'll only love them if they're easy to love or if they're helping me get what I want, which the scriptures say that's how unbelievers love, is they love the people who are easy to love. But humility says, I have a high view of God and I have a high view of people who bear his image. Dr. Cheryl Bell, I heard her say this just in the last week. Pride says, I want what I want when I want it. So the opposite of humility is pride, right? And pride says, I want what I want when I want it. And then we we put that in motion by living a life based on our own authority because we actually believe I'm best able to get me what I want when I want it. And then we even sometimes see this humble or self-defacing view of pride that's still centered on self, but it's this really broken view of self where I'm always down on self, which is still focused on self. And so I need to find my identity in another person. We call that codependency. And codependency says, I know who can get me what I want when I want it. And I'm going to be connected to them in this false relationship that's really about me getting what I want. But I believe biblical humility says this. I want what God wants when he wants it. And I don't know about you, but that definition of humility is hard for me to swallow. Because what I realize, the longer I follow God is he reveals more and more parts of my heart that don't actually want what he wants. I want my way. And I sure don't want it when he wants it. I want it on my timeline, which always, like 100% of the time, seems to be sooner and quicker and faster than when he wants it. Humility of heart says, this story isn't all about me. I want my life to orient around the one whom it's all about, the God of the universe, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I want what he wants, and I want it when he wants it, on his timeline and on his terms. And so we ask ourselves, are are we preoccupied with thoughts of self? How's this going to work out for me? How, how do they think of me? What, what do they think about how I did that? And, and can I get ahead here? Can I position myself here? Can I, can I get this person close to me? Cause I think there's something I can get from them constantly thinking about how we can fix what we want or get what we want. C.S. Lewis said this, a truly humble person isn't thinking about being humble. Because a humble person really isn't thinking about self at all. True humility isn't about, I'm going to try really hard to be humble. It's just having a grander view of God and the people who bear his image. And Rick Warren took that C.S. Lewis quote and he modernized it by saying, humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's just thinking of ourselves less. It's not that we think we're some awful, horrible, terrible, beat up, busted, unworthy thing. We just think more highly of God. 
and believe that it's all about him. And we believe, therefore, the best about others. And what we're seeing right now is in a spirit of pride, we sure do seem to be believing the worst about one another. If you don't vote the way I vote or look the way I look or think the way I think or have the same views about the minutia of this pandemic, then I think less of you. Clearly, you're an idiot and I'm a genius. That seems to be the mantra. And it's a snapshot of something I read about just a few months ago that I have found fascinating because I'm, I'm watching this in my own heart and in, in the lives of so many people around me. It's a phenomenon called illusory superiority. I know that's a, a big term. Illusory, the illusion of superiority. It's a psychological phenomenon that is, that tells me I'm biased. That I have a set of lenses that sees me better than I see any other person. That I hold other people to a standard that I don't hold myself to. That we tend to view the rest of the world as somehow less than they are and ourselves better than we are. So I want you to think about this for a minute, right? Put on your, your, your entry level math brain, like kindergarten math brain, right? Average, right? For, for us to be average means we aren't in the minority above everyone. And yet here's the thing. We think we're smarter than the average. We all think that. <laughs> and every bit of research has revealed that most people think their IQ is higher than average. Most people think their work performance is higher than average. Most people think that their charitable giving is better than average. Here's the thing, y'all. We can't all be better than average. Like, mathematically, that's not possible. So a survey done a long time ago among college professors asked them, do you believe you are a more proficient college professor than your peers? And check this out. 92% said, yes, I think I'm better than the average. Wait, 92% is the average. Like, we, we can't be better than that. Another survey that I read about, um, talked to people who worked in, uh, in the data field, the, the software, uh, uh, field. And they asked people at this software company, do you believe that among 20 of your peers, you're the top? In other words, among the 20, you're better than the other 19, which would mean you're performing in the top 5% of your field. And here's the thing about the top 5% position. 32% of the people on the survey said, yep, I'm in the top 5%. And that math just, I'm not a great math guy, but I know that you can't cram 32% into 5%. We tend to see ourselves better than we really are. And unfortunately, we often tend to judge other people. And, 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 and the reason is because we often judge people just at the surface. But we want to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We want to judge at the heart level with our motives and how we meant for it to be. We'll get really hurt if somebody says something to us the wrong way. But if we say it the wrong way back to them, it's, oh, well, I didn't mean it that way. And, and we tend to live with this illusion that really it's pride. And, 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 and I had a hard time finding modern sermons about humility in preparation for this research. As a matter of fact, you'll see over these weeks that most of my quotes are from old dead guys. Because this is not a popular topic anymore. And it hasn't been for a couple generations. 
because there was a huge shift in our culture back in the 60s. It's called the self-esteem movement. Changed the way that teachers teach. It changed the way that counselors counsel. And it's changed the way that preachers preach. We think the solution to everything is that people will just feel better about themselves. And it's really interesting to watch how society has changed since this movement. Because what's been discovered is excessive self-esteem is actually the root for the worst kinds of bullying. It's actually the source of the rationale behind a drunk driver. And it's the source of the thinking that would lead to racism. And we had a guy here a few years ago speak to our school about bullying. And in one of the books that he wrote, Paul Coughlin said this, I'm great, too easily becomes, I'm greater than you. We have built an entire system in our world today to build people's view of themselves up. And I think we're reaping the consequences of people who think they're the center of the universe. And my highest goal, my highest calling as your pastor is to not actually help you have a higher view of you. I think my calling is to help you have a higher view of our God, a higher view of our Savior, a a sweeter savoring of his grace towards us, that we might be satisfied in the undeserving love that he has poured out, that we would find our identity in the incredible lengths that he would go to rescue us from ourselves, that we would make much of him and see him as greater and grander than anything the world has to offer. And according to the the mantra or the creed of the culture, there's no such thing as a bad person, just a person who has a bad view of themselves. And yet what we have found out is the gospel starts at a very different place. All of this this shift in our culture really kind of finds its Bible in the 1950s. In 1952, a book was published called The Power of Positive Thinking by Norman Vincent Peale. And the opening words to that book are this. Believe in yourself. Have faith in your abilities. And I love you so much today that I'm going to I'm going to beg you. Please don't have faith in yourself. Please have faith in a glorious God who loves you. Please don't trust in your abilities. Trust in his ability to do more through you than you could ever do if you were living for yourself. Have faith in him. Turn to him. That's where humility sets us free from small living, from small-minded thinking. This is the beginning of the gospel. The gospel teaches us that we're sinners. We need to be rescued. We need to be saved from sin. That we're not inclined to love righteousness, to love what's good. We're dead in our sin. We can't save ourselves. We can't fix ourselves to be saveable. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us that the, the natural person left to ourselves, we don't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to us. We can't understand them because they're spiritual. We're that disconnected. And in, in spite Of all this brokenness, we're incredibly proud of ourselves. (laughs) In spite of this, this, this despair, this no way out, we find that lack of self-esteem is not actually the core problem. It's that we need to be saved. We need to be rescued from what's inside of us. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7 that it's from within, the heart of man, 
come evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. See, the message of of modern psychology and of the modern view of the world is all of my problems happened to me. They're outside of me. But if I look within, I can find wholeness. And the message of the gospel says my greatest problems have come within me. And I need a savior outside of me to save me from me. And in his glorious grace, he's made that salvation available. And the lengths he's gone to to do so are mind-blowing because we're undeserving. We're unworthy of a glorious God laying down his life for us. Because Romans chapter 5, through one man's disobedience, Adam's sin, many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of one, Jesus Christ, many will be made righteous. In that little set of verses there in Romans chapter 5, six times just in those handful of verses, the Apostle Paul uses the words none, no one, no not one. None of us are righteous. Only Jesus, only the capital O, one, has been perfect. And he laid down his life to rescue those of us who were no not one. (laughs) We weren't him. We weren't sinless. The Apostle Paul doesn't say that the most important thing to get ahead in life is to feel better about ourselves. He actually says in Romans 12, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. We need to think greater of God and his glory and of the people around us who bear his image. That's the key to flourish. That's the key to wholeness. One author said, making a savage feel good about himself only increases his deadliness. And and what I want more than anything in the world this morning is for you to have a grander view of a God who loves you. Because when we orient our life around him in humility, it sets us free from having to pretend to be him. And the effects of centering around him are glorious. It's what we'll discuss for the next few weeks. We'll look at two reasons that it's a beautiful and a freeing thing with the rest of this verse this morning. We're going to look at the, the warning and the promise. If all of us don't clothe ourselves with humility, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is a, a quotation from the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. It's a quotation that was so important to Peter, who spent all that time with Jesus. He felt like this mirrors the heart of Jesus. And guess what? Jesus' little half-brother, James, he quoted Proverbs 3, 34 as well in James chapter 4, verse 6. This is a, a crucial phrase and kind of a scary phrase. God opposes the proud. What I'm seeing as, as I look around our culture today is that we're so worried about people opposing us. We're so offended that someone would oppose us because we believe we deserve better. And what what... What, what I worry about, what, what I fear about today is that we're missing the opponent. That I believe we should be maniacally concerned about building ourselves up to be in opposition to a holy God. 
that's the real opposition that I think should cause us to pause. I don't want to make life about me because God's too glorious to share his glory with another. That's the repeated theme of the scriptures. And God just won't endorse my love of self. He won't endorse my little kingdom of me. And so if I'm trying to make it all about me, the only thing a loving God can do, if he really loves me, is oppose that effort to tear down that little illusion of a kingdom. One more quote from C.S. Lewis. We're almost done. C.S. Lewis wrote this. Pride is a spiritual cancer. Listen to this. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Isn't that power? Pride is a, is a spiritual cancer that eats up our ability to love, to be content, Or to have common sense. And that makes so much sense that pride, of course, would eat away my ability to love others because I'm so focused on loving self. And of course, pride would eat away at contentment because how can I be content with what I have if I feel like I deserve what you have? I deserve something better. I deserve something grander. And of course, pride eats away at common sense. Because for a person, just a fallen regular man or woman, to try to build the kingdoms of earth around ourselves? That's foolish. We can't orient life around self and it make any sense at all. Only when we in humility make much of him does life make sense. God opposes the proud. That is a warning. But here's where we close this morning. There's a promise. He gives grace to the humble. There is a promise of grace when we see ourselves for who we are and see him for who he is. And I got to tell you, church, I'm standing before this camera this morning in need of grace. I'm more aware of how much grace I need today than I was yesterday. We need grace. I can't save me. I can't fix me. I can't create my own destiny. And the amazing thing is, is it's in the realization of our desperate need for grace that God makes it available. (laughs) It's when we realize that he alone is good and glorious and he alone can satisfy the longings of our heart. That's when he pours out his grace. He's not going to give it to us if we don't think we need it. He's not going to give us the most wonderful thing in the world if we have no need of it. It's in our awareness of our desperation for grace that we receive it. When I realize there's a bigger story being written, it's the story of God. It's his glory among all humankind, not just my little moment in the story and my little picture. And and, and I want to say this. I, I believe this is a grace for somebody this morning. I don't say this unkindly. I don't say this unlovingly. COVID-19 is not happening to you. Maybe you have it right now. Maybe you've already have it. Maybe you've lost a loved one to the disease. Maybe you've lost a job because of the implications of the virus. But here's what I would say to you. It's not all about us. It's not actually happening to us. We belong to a grander story. And this is impacting our entire state, our entire country, and really the global economy. And when I see that 
that I'm a part of a bigger story, it sets me free from the downward spiral of pride. Because if I think I deserve better and this whole thing is happening to me and the whole world is against me, man, I'm going to be crushed underneath the weight of that. But in humility, when I see there's a grander story being written by a God who's unfathomable, I don't know what he's up to. And it's impacting the world. It's not just me. There's a freedom in that humility. There's a healing in that humility that doesn't change the circumstance. Because COVID-19 has made a mess of things. But it does help the weight of it. We realize that this isn't all on us. Another grace that I want to speak to specifically, practically, before I end is this. I'm perceiving that many of the people I care about are really frustrated that the experts can't get this right. Why do the experts keep contradicting one another? Why do the experts not have a a cure yet? Why do the experts not know how school should look? Why do the experts not have all of this fixed? And what I believe that is, is that is a, a, a form of human pride. We actually think that there's such a thing before the God of the universe as an expert. And here's the deal. What we're actually seeing in the COVID-19 pandemic is a very healthy reminder that we are not God. And we're not very good at running the universe. And we don't know what's coming next. Listen, the evidence is contradicting itself because we don't have a ton of evidence yet. Matter of fact, just this morning, my wife told me, she said, hey, I just read that they're saying eight months after having COVID-19, you can have an upheaval of symptoms again. And the article being written was, how can they know that? They haven't studied this for eight months yet. And here's the thing about that guess of what might happen eight months down the road is a whole lot of this is a guess because we're not actually that big a deal. We're not actually God. And we don't actually have that much control. But if we can have a grander view of the God who does, the peace in that humility changes our whole orientation of life. It changes our whole approach to this thing. There is joy in humility. There is grace found in humility for seeing God who he is. And then for having a higher view of those who bear his image, which is every man, every woman, and every child. I want us to respond in a couple ways this morning. One is this. I believe we need to turn up the volume of God's voice and turn down the volume of man's voice. If we're reading every single post being made by our friends who are fighting with each other, if we're watching every single press conference, or if we're just having conversations among ourselves about all of this, I think we're missing a crucial voice. If we'll humble ourselves and dive into truth, I believe we'll see all of this with greater clarity. Because to see truth from the God of truth helps us see him for who he is and helps us see ourselves for who we are. And it helps us see the other players in the play for who they are too. And so you'll notice that there's a link this morning uh, in the bulletin that was emailed to you on the app. uh, You'll see that there's a link. And then the description of this video, there's a link to a a reading plan. It's a seven-day reading plan. Just a couple scriptures and then a devotional thought written each day. Actually written by Dave Ramsey's daughter. And it's on the topic of humility. I'm encouraging you to dive into that. 
Listen, if you've got a couple crazy days this week and you only spend five days in the reading plan or four or whatever, but if that's four more days than you did last week, I think that'll help posture your heart towards truth, posture your heart towards hope and towards God. So I encourage you, please, to dive into that plan. It's meant to be a resource for us to have a right view of self because we have a right view of God. I would say this, if you don't know for sure that you have a relationship with God, the first step to this joy and to this peace is humbling ourselves enough to say, I don't think I'm perfect, and I don't think I can fix all my problems. And in a way that you can take that step of humility is actually by not taking a step, it's by actually clicking a link. You'll see that there's another link that says, can we talk? And maybe you want to engage in a conversation about how you can know for sure that you have a relationship with God. We'd love to talk to you, whether that's through text or email or phone call, or if you want to do a FaceTime conversation, however you're most comfortable, we want to talk to you because we believe that in that step of humility and seeing God for who he is, life begins to make sense when we orient around him and not try to build life around self. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the beginning of of this journey through this text for these couple weeks together thank you that it's not all up to us that we don't have to make it all about us but god we are really prone to try to do so god if you don't set us free from little kingdom living we'll stay in bondage god free us in humility to see you for who you are and to love the people who bear your image whether they endorse us or agree with us or do the things that we want them to do, that we'd love them just because you're that big of a deal. God, would you set us free in the power of humility? In Jesus' name, amen.